So a couple from Milwaukee decided to go to Florida to thaw out during one particularly icy winter. And because of their hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate travel plans. So the husband left Milwaukee. He flew down to Florida on Thursday with the wife planning to fly down the next day. Well, the husband checked into the hotel and decided it would be a good idea to email my wife, let her know I'm here. So uh, he did that. However, not being the most tech-savvy guy ever, he entered his email address incorrectly and without realizing his error, sent the message. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow just returned from her husband's funeral. The husband had been a pastor and had died unexpectedly, tragically, due to a heart attack. The wife checked her email expecting messages from relatives and friends, but after reading the first message, she screamed and fainted. Her son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and once he was able to revive her, asked her what happened, she just handed the phone to him and without a word, pointed at the message on the screen. It read, Hi, sweetheart. I just wanted to let you know I arrived. It sure is hot down here. I'm all checked in and looking forward to your arrival tomorrow. <clears throat> yeah. Context is everything, right? Yeah. Of all the topics we could talk about on Sunday, probably one of the very least pleasant is the topic of hell. And yet it's a subject that no doubt all of us at one time or another have thought about, uh, have wondered about, more than likely have had some questions about. The image of hell as this horrible, inescapable place of fiery torment has a pretty firm grip on our collective imagination. Dante's Inferno, the famous 14th century poem describing hell as nine circles of torment, provides much of that imagery, whether or not we've ever read the poem. It's shaped our nightmares, it's shaped our horror movies, and all too often it has shaped our theology as well. And the sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan pastor back in 1741 called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, has inspired many a hellfire and brimstone sermon since. Edwards preached, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous, venomous serpent is in ours. Nice, huh? Well, this vision of an angry, wrathful God, ready and willing to consign most of humanity to everlasting torment, is what many people, both Christian and non-Christian, believe the Bible teaches. In many cases, it is what the church has taught. But is it true? Is it what Jesus and the apostles taught? Is the good news simply that we get to escape this horrible destiny while countless others don't? 
Well, in this sermon series called Scandalous Truth, we're raising some questions which we're pretty sure that a lot of us who think about our faith wonder about now and then. And we're considering some answers that might be different from what you've always heard. But it's all part of wrestling with the Bible so that we can come to know God better. That's really our goal here. So today, we want to talk about, ask some questions about hell. Are you ready? Are you excited? (laughs) Here we go. Let's pray. Thank you for your presence, Lord, with us. Thank you that, that you are here, Holy Spirit, working in each of our lives this morning, that none of us are here by accident. You've drawn each one of us here, and that you're speaking to our minds, to our hearts. You're drawing us more deeply into the love of God our Father. And so we open ourselves to you. Say, come Holy Spirit, be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me read to you from Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to be reading verses uh, 31 to 46. If you're following along in your Bible or the words will be on the screen. Um, And this is Jesus speaking. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not visit me, or you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, this passage is one of the longer and more explicit sections in the Bible pointing toward two possible outcomes for our lives, heaven or hell. And it's Jesus doing the teaching, so that's pretty significant, right? Uh, But what is Jesus actually saying in this passage, and what is he not saying? Well, before we dig into that, I want to talk a bit about what the Jewish people believed 
regarding the afterlife and, and some of the words they use to describe it. You know, one of the problems with understanding what is meant by hell is that this tiny word carries a lot of baggage. Over the centuries, it has picked up meanings often far removed from what was originally intended in the Bible. You know, something that might surprise you is just how little the Bible actually talks about the afterlife, especially in the Old Testament. The pagan religions of Egypt, the Babylonians, others like them, had very elaborate theories about what happened to you after you die and and what the afterlife was like. But the Hebrews during Old Testament times just talked about what they called Sheol, the abode of the dead. As C.S. Lewis wrote, it seems quite clear that in most parts of the Old Testament, there is little or no belief in a future life, certainly not belief that is of any religious importance. The word translated soul in our version of the Psalms simply means life. And the word translated hell simply means the land of the dead, the state of all the dead, good and bad alike. Sheol. Sheol. That's also a useful word if you stub your toe or hit your thumb with a hammer. Sheol. (laughs) By the time of Jesus, the Jews had adopted a word from Greek mythology, Hades, to describe the land of the dead. Hades is translated as hell in some of our English Bibles, especially in the older uh, versions. For example, in the King James Version of Revelation 1, Jesus says, I have the keys to hell and death. Uh, But the word actually is Hades. I have the keys to Hades and death. And like Sheol, Hades wasn't very well defined. Uh, It was just a shadow land of the dead, you could say. As C.S. Lewis again writes, Hades is neither heaven nor hell. It's almost nothing, he wrote. So if you're mad at somebody, but not that mad, you could say, go to Hades, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny, <laughs> if you couldn't tell. Neither Sheol nor Hades would have been imagined as a place of fiery torment or as a medieval torture chamber. You know, many of those popular images of hell don't actually come from the Bible. But because they're in our imagination, that might be what we think the Bible means when we read those words. The other Greek word that was often translated as hell in the New Testament was Gehenna. The word literally means the Valley of Hinnom, and it refers to an actual valley just south of Jerusalem, which in Old Testament times had been a horrible place where children were sacrificed to the pagan god Molech, just as a horrible thing. By the time of Jesus, it had been turned into this burning, maggot-fested garbage dump. And that, no doubt, helped create some of our images of hell. Six centuries before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that because of its sinful rebellion, Jerusalem would be dragged into into Gehenna, into the valley of Hinnom. Well, that prophecy was fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed and burned Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Jerusalem had gone to Gehenna. It had gone to hell, you could say. Well, Jesus also made frequent predictions about the impending doom of Jerusalem. 
New Testament scholar N.T. Wright makes a strong case that many of the passages where Jesus warns people about the fires of Gehenna, like when he says to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell or literally sentenced to Gehenna? He's not talking about what happens after they die. Jesus was saying if they don't stop resisting Rome, you know, if they don't stop promoting rebellion, the Roman armies are going to come and destroy them just like the armies of Babylon did back in Jeremiah's day. And that is exactly what happened in AD 70. Jesus was right. Uh, And it was an absolutely horrendous time. Hell on earth, you could say. Much of the time when Jesus was talking about hell, he was talking about a literal hell in this life. But not always. And the passage I read in Matthew 25 is a case in point. I started wondering about hell a long time ago. I had grown up, excuse me, with one image of hell in my mind, one description of hell, uh, what's referred to as the infernalist view. Hell as the eternal, physical, conscious torment of the wicked, right? It's, It's the picture most of us have of hell. And the main thing I knew about it was I didn't want to end up there, right? Growing up Catholic, I understood that the way to avoid hell was to make sure that my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds, my sins. Now, of course, you could never be totally sure of that, so there was a fair amount of nagging fear all the time in the background. Now, that's probably not the official teaching of the Catholic Church. It's not an accurate description of what they really teach, but it is what I heard growing up. It's how I understood it. Then I became a follower of Jesus, and I I learned that it's my faith in Jesus, not my good deeds, that keeps me out of hell. That's good news, right? That was good news. It was a definite improvement. But it didn't change the fact that there was still this place that God, who I was beginning to realize looks like Jesus, our God who is full of love and grace and mercy, sends people to suffer in horrible torment forever with no hope of escape. That was confusing. Yeah, it didn't make sense. I knew all the ways it's explained. I knew all the teachings on the need for God's justice. I I could get that. But one of the things that really started to bother me was that even if someone is a, a really horribly bad person, the longest they are like that, the longest they could be like that is, you know, what, 80 or 90 years, right? Even the worst person. So why is the punishment for all of eternity? That didn't seem like justice to me. Remember, even way back in 1500 B.C., when God gave his law to the Hebrew people, he taught them an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, the punishment, he said, needs to fit the crime. And Jesus went way beyond that. Jesus said, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, pray for those who persecute you. Don't give them what they deserve. Give them grace, give them mercy. Well, if Jesus was teaching us that, then shouldn't we expect God 
to be doing it. And then what about someone who had never heard about Jesus, but lived a good life full of love, maybe even more so than someone who did claim to know Jesus? What happened to them? So all those questions were swirling around in my mind. And about that time, I was on a mission trip, went on a mission trip to Lithuania. And I was staying at the home of uh, Eurus and Marina, uh, who were at the time pastoring a vineyard church in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. That's Marina there with me and me in my younger days. Um, I think I look older, but whatever. Um, uh, back somewhere in Vilnius there. And I was in their house, and I was browsing through Eurus's books one day, and, I, and a book caught my eye uh, called 12 Views on Hell. It was actually a collection of papers presented at a conference of the Scottish Evangelical Theological Society. I had no idea there were 12 possible views of hell. That was like news to me. Um, you know, and, and Scottish evangelicals aren't known to be like some weird fringe group, right? They're pretty solid Bible-believing Christians. So I, I borrowed the book. Actually, I still have the book, so I didn't technically borrow it. Um, <laughs> confession, yeah. Um, and that started me down the road to exploring this topic. The 12 views ranged from the view I had learned, the eternal, physical, conscious torment of the wicked on one end, all the way on the other end of the spectrum to pure universalism, where there is no hell at all. And then in between, there were all sorts of variations, including one which I've since learned is a fairly common and fairly well-respected view called annihilation, annihilationism, which if you can say that three times fast, you're doing good, annihilationism, which says that going to hell means you are simply going to cease to exist, totally, that that's what it means. The thing is, as I started studying this, you can find Bible verses to support any of those views of hell. For example, the Bible repeatedly affirms that God has given us the ability to choose life or death, heaven or hell, and that our choice makes a real difference. But the Bible also affirms just as plainly that God is free to forgive. He's free to show mercy, uh, even when judgment is deserved. Justice is not this law that is higher than God and constrains God and dictates to him what he must do. Justice flows from God's heart of compassion and it serves his love. Then the Bible talks too about how all things will be made new one day. Everything will be reconciled to God and how God desires everyone to be saved, with the idea being that God being God, in the end, gets what he desires. The Bible says absolutely everything will be summed up in Christ. So the only way we can say there is only one possible way to understand hell, that we have the correct understanding of it and anything else and everyone else is wrong, is by picking only the verses we like and ignoring the rest, right? That's the way to do that. I love what Brad Jerzak writes in his book about hell called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which is a great book on the topic. He says, rather than painting themselves into universalist or infernalist corners, 
A great many of the church fathers and early Christians found refuge in the humility of hope. Great phrase, the humility of hope. They maintained the possibility, but not the presumption, of some version of judgment in hell, and the twin possibility, but not the presumption, that at the end of the day, no one need suffer forever. Possibility, not presumption. And the humility of hope. Wow, those just seemed like really good ideas to me. Amen? So what was Jesus teaching in Matthew 25? What possibilities is he pointing us toward? Let me read the uh, second half of that again, the last uh, six or seven verses here. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. <clears throat> it's interesting that what Jesus does not say is that those who are punished are punished because they did not believe the right doctrine, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I think right doctrine, right belief is important. But it's important so that we can come to know God, so we can come to trust God, so that we can open our lives to his life-transforming love so that, as a result of all of that, we can live a life of love. That seems to be what Jesus says really matters. And I'm sure Jesus was not listing a set of behaviors to check off our list. You know, you don't have to panic because you never visited someone in prison, right? Um, it's not a checklist. Jesus is saying, are you receiving my love? Yeah? Are you allowing me to transform you with my love so that you can live a life of love? Not that you're perfect, but is that the journey you're on? Because if you are, then heaven begins to come into your life now. You become more and more like Jesus now, and you experience his life now. And if that is the path you are on, that is the path you will continue on now and forever. Amen. But if we don't open ourselves to receiving God's love, we'll live self-centered lives. We'll make money or success or fame or pleasure, or maybe being right, our God. If you do that, it'll shrivel your life, not enlarge it. It'll isolate you, not connect you with other people. That's the image of hell C.S. Lewis paints in his great little book called The Great Divorce. In that book, he describes it as, as being left absolutely, totally alone, and you're still so selfish you wouldn't have it any other way. It's really quite a frightening picture. Jesus' teaching on hell is basically this. 
If you refuse to love, if you refuse to receive the love of God and to love in response, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you'll end up a lonely, tormented soul. Or to put it more simply, hell comes from rejecting God's love. Hell comes from rejecting God's love. But two words hold out the possibility of hope, even for those who reject his love. And the first, maybe surprisingly, is punishment. There's a Greek word that is translated as punishment from ancient Greek that means the kind of punishment that is given to make you pay for your crime, you know, retribution. Uh, But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. There's another Greek word which carries the idea of corrective discipline. You know, the goal of this kind of punishment isn't retribution, it's restoration, it's renewal. And that is the word that Jesus uses here. The other word that could give us hope is eternal. Now, we read that word and usually we think it means everlasting. So the punishment, we think, is without end. It's everlasting. But the Greek word used is ionin. And it literally means age, as in a period of time. The New Testament talks about how we live in this present age, but we look forward to the age to come when Jesus returns. Rather than being everlasting punishment, this phrase could just as well be read as punishment of the age. And again, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it's not talking about how long the punishment lasts, but when it occurs in the age to come, punishment of the age. Then there's another verse which I think really speaks into how we think about hell. And it's a verse whose message is repeated many times in many places throughout the Bible. It's Lamentations 3.22. Why don't we read it together? It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Let's read it again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Good verse to memorize. When does the love of God for people cease? Not a trick question. Never. (laughs) When do God's mercies come to an end? Never. Hell comes from rejecting God's love, but God's love never ends. See, our God does not have a split personality. He is not both full of wrath and full of love. He doesn't change either. You know, God is and always has been and always will be just like he revealed himself to be in Jesus. His disposition toward everyone, including the worst people, the worst sinners, is always love. That's who he is. And his love never ends. Now, I believe in hell. Not the hell of Dante's imagination, but the hell that the Bible actually teaches us about. I believe that whether or not we receive God's love, which he's given us through Jesus, and then allow his love to transform us so that we can live a life of love, I believe that really makes a difference, both in this age and in the age to come. And I also believe 
that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Hell comes from rejecting God's love, and God's love never ends. That image of hell as a place of fire is not a bad image. If you remember, first of all, that it's a metaphor. The fire is a metaphor. And second of all, that in the Bible, fire is just about always a metaphor for something that purifies and refines and renews, not something that destroys. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of God as the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne as judge. It reads, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now that could be a very frightening vision until you remember that God is love. From his heart flows a stream of fire, which I believe is the river of his love, the fire of his love. And those who open themselves to receive his love, they experience that fire as warmth as comfort, as joy, as peace. But those who reject his love, those who choose hatred over love or selfishness over generosity, they experience that stream of fire as the wrath of God. It's a torment to them. That's true in this life, and it's true in the age to come. But here's the thing. It's the same fire. It's always the fire of his love. It's a question of how we respond to it. God doesn't love some people and hate others. Hell comes from rejecting God's love. Hell is not God's hatred of sinners. Jesus showed us that God has a single disposition toward everyone, and that is unending love. Isaac the Syrian was a 7th century bishop and theologian, and he said, those who are suffering in hell are being scourged by love. It's a good picture. It's totally false, he wrote, to think of sinners in hell as being deprived of God's love. Love's power works in two ways. It torments sinners while at the same time it delights those who have lived in accord with it, those who've lived in accord with his love. Nor in hell does God abandon sinners forever. Hell very well may feel like the isolation that C.S. Lewis described. But it's not because God and his love aren't there. I've heard hell described, might have been C.S. Lewis again, as the final mercy of God. And I think that maybe fits that picture, that it is the place where his mercy works on you when nothing else has worked. His love works on you when nothing else has worked. It works as this torment of fire to draw you back to him. Now, could someone go on resisting the love of God forever? I suppose they probably could, right? I think they could. That's a possibility. But the purpose of God's fiery love is to cause them to repent. In other words, to turn and receive his love. And God's love never ends.
See, this, I think, is the amazing, scandalous good news of Jesus. God's love never ends. This is the good news that that he's calling us to receive more and more for ourselves, that God's love never ends. Not just generally, but personally for you. God's love never ends. And this is the good news that that we're called to share with everyone we know. This is why we want to pass out invitations and bring people here on Easter so they can hear about the love of God. It's because God's love never ends. And this is why Jesus calls each one of us and everyone over and over at deeper and deeper levels to repent. That's not a threat. It's not a call to feel bad about yourself. It's an invitation into life. It's a call to turn and receive the love of God at deeper and deeper levels. See, the main point of all of this isn't that we have hell all figured out. It's not that, that we understand everything perfectly so we can one-up everybody else out there that doesn't quite get it. The main point is knowing that God's love never ends. And his invitation to you into that love, his invitation to you into that life, that never ends either. So the question today is, how is Jesus inviting you into his love right now? How is he inviting you into his love today? You know, what, in what area, in what need, with what doubt, maybe what temptation, what sin, what difficulty do you need to receive the love of God right now? His love is there for you. And his love is this purifying, transforming fire, right? It's a great picture. All you have to do is turn to Jesus and receive the warmth of his love. Amen? Amen. Stand and let's pray.